Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Well, Star Trek Las Vegas has come and gone as we move into the home stretch of summer, and now the waiting begins. Waiting for the premiere of Star Trek Picard in early 2020, waiting for the return of Star Trek Discovery in late 2020, waiting for Lower Decks sometime in 2020, and waiting to hear anything at all about Section 31. Go figure that a show about Section 31 would be shrouded in mystery. I don't have any hot news for you this week about new Star Trek projects, because there isn't any news, really. The most enlightening thing to come out of Star Trek Las Vegas last weekend was probably Mike McMahon telling us that A, Lower Decks will be canon, despite being wacky and animated, which is great, and B, the USS Cerritos, the ship on the show, will be a second contact vessel who swoops in to do the business of Federation onboarding immediately after the Enterprise or whoever warps away at the end of the episode, which is totally an idea that I had for a series of Star Trek novels a while ago, but whatever, it sounds like a good premise. What concerns me most right now as a broadcaster is just how I'm going to cover all of these new Trek shows entering visual range. So far, we've of course had two fantastic seasons of Star Trek Discovery and two seasons of Discoverage, our live disco recap and discussion show hosted by me and my co-host Ella Pearson of the Generations Geek podcast. But Disco is taking a breather and Picard is on deck, so what do we do? I've been in conference with Ella, and our plan is to transform Discoverage, which has been something of a supplemental feature to this show, into its own entity, to be named, that will be an all-encompassing program for currently airing Star Trek shows. You kids with your Netflix, you don't even know how overwhelming this is, having three and potentially more Star Trek series running concurrently. I got nervous just having DS9 overlap with TNG and subsequently Voyager. But Ella is a young person, and she's literally getting her degree in media studies, so she's going to keep this thing on track as we head into this new frontier for Trek Entertainment. That new show, again, to be named, and hey, if you've got any pitches for what we could name the new show, let us know on social media at EISTpod on Facebook or Twitter or email us at EISTpod at gmail.com. That new show will be distinct from enterprising individuals and will get its own feed on podcast platforms and all that stuff, but it'll still feature live coverage of episodes of Picard, Lower Decks, and Disco Season 3, live meaning streamed immediately after those episodes air on CBS All Access. And it will feature guests from the Trek Literary World, Trek Twitter, other podcasts, and more as it always has. Yes, To Be Named will be a great addition to the Just Enough Trope Network if we can figure out a good name for it. And speaking of the Just Enough Trope Network, two things on that subject. You might know that I host a podcast along with Gooey Fame, the host of the Virtual Theater Podcast and former Enterprising Individuals guest. That podcast is called Backtracking, and on that show, Gooey and I look at the real-world inspirations behind your favorite episodes of Star Trek. All art is inspired by something, be it history, literature, the natural world, or even other art, and Star Trek is no exception. On Backtracking, we watch an episode of Trek, and we also examine the thing that inspired it. On our first episode, we talked about the TNG episode Starship Mine, and its clear inspiration, the 1988 action classic Die Hard. On our most recent episode, the snake has started to eat its own tail as we discuss the TNG episode The Naked Now and the TOS episode that it's based on, The Naked Time. It's a fun and funny show, and it's not for kids, so bring your earmuffs, but I encourage you to check it out, and there's no better time as Backtrekking is joining the Just Enough Trope Network and our family of podcasts. You can find out more about Backtrekking at at Backtrekking on Twitter, that's B-A-C-K-T-R-E-K-K-I-N-G, and on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash backtracking. Check it out. Second network note, we may have gotten drunk and bought a radio station. If you enjoy enterprising individuals or backtracking or any of the shows on the Just Enough Trope Network and you enjoy popular music, you're in luck. The Just Enough Trope Network now has an internet radio station, Just Enough Trope Radio. JET Radio is accessible through your browser or through the live 365 iPhone or Android app and features 24 hours a day music and podcasts about Star Trek, film, TV shows, and pop culture. Now, we're um, 
a little new to the uh, internet radio business, and we want to give you the radio station that you want to hear. So to help us do that, please consider taking a short two-minute survey about your listening habits. You can find a link in the show notes to the survey, or you can find it on our Twitter at at EISTpod. It's 10 quick questions about the kind of music you like and the kind of podcast that you listen to, and it's going to help us make Just Enough Trip Radio the show for you. You can listen to JET Radio right now, though we haven't had a hard launch just yet. That'll be later in the year. But we are airing music and episodes of Just Enough Trope and other network shows, so I'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. Okay, let's get to today's topic. Last week, I talked with Bonnie Liston about the TNG episode The Price, an episode that's um, not fantastic, but it does represent maybe the point where Marina Sirtis finally got some decent plot lines to play as Counselor Troy, and it wasn't just mooning over Commander Riker or having magic alien babies or eating chocolate. And as I was preparing for that conversation a few weeks ago, I began to realize something. The Federation is supposed to be this amazing utopia where all races and all sexes are equal, and a lot of times the production of Trek uh, and the shows themselves get similarly characterized with those lofty ideals. But that's, I think, far from the truth, especially when looking at the original series and the early years of The Next Generation. Any given episode of TOS or TNG, uh, let's say the first two and a half years of TNG, is peppered with workplace discrimination, harassment, objectification, marginalization, all the Asians. It's like the writing staff, they've heard of these women you speak of, and they think they've got them down. Step one, love chocolate. Got it. Step two, question mark. Step three, feminist utopia. I have to admit that I never looked with a very critical feminist eye at the early years of Star Trek, but once I started to do it, that rabbit hole got deeper and deeper. So because I'm a podcaster, my first instinct was to assemble a panel of knowledgeable women to honestly evaluate the early years of TOS and TNG, and we'll have them give a feminist report card of sorts for how well Trek lives up to its egalitarian ideals. On this panel, we had former guest of the show and amusements editor for Current Affairs magazine, Lyda Gold, also appearing and also a former guest on this show, writer and chief creative officer of Lightburn Software, Sarah Lynn Michener, and appearing on the show for the first time, writer, editor, and social media professional, Amy Imhoff. The plan was set, but the plans of mice and podcasters gong off to glay. Longtime listeners to the show will know the saga of the beast the laptop whose claws I must tear this show from every week to bring to you. It's a saga that has continued through tragedy to comedy to utter absurdity. At this point, it's even managed to ensnare the brand new, much more expensive laptop I bought to replace the Beast. But the Beast, she will not be denied. Long story short, while recording an amazing roundtable with those three fantastic guests, recording on the Beast because my new laptop was getting a little preventative maintenance, the Beast, she hunger, and she ate that show. The Beast is now chained up in the shed out back, and we're wondering what we can even do with her. Currently, I'm planning on running the radio station off of her, so look forward to that saga continuing in the internet radio sphere. Anyway, my new laptop, oh, let's call her the Beauty, is back from the shop, but I got no show. However, during that conversation with Lyda, Sarah, and Amy, I found myself returning again and again for facts and figures and research to the work of one Jera Hodge, one of the hosts of the Women at Warp podcast. Jera has been thinking about this reality for years, that Trek took a lot longer than anybody really admits to become as feminist as it claims it is, and she's done a great series of articles about the makeup of the production staff of the various Trek series, how each series performs on a Bechdel test metric, the whole nine yards, charts, graphs, you name it. So I thought... Why not go to the source this time, talk with Jera directly, and get this feminist report card business sorted out once and for all? And that's what I did, and that's what you'll hear today. My conversation with Jera. My apologies to Lyda, Sarah, and Amy. We had a great conversation. It's just one that you'll never hear, uh, though they'll all appear again on this show at some point. So let's get into it. Enjoy my talk with Jera. I'll have links to her articles about this subject in the show notes. Check out Women at Warp and let us know what you think about this topic. Join our Facebook discussion group on Facebook. It's called Enterprising Interlocutions, and it's a place where we continue the conversations that we have on this podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode, if the beast doesn't slip its chains, that is. And with that, let's get underway. 
I'm joined on the show today by Jara Hodge. Jara is a blogger and feminist activist, and she's one of the hosts of the podcast Women at Warp at womenatwarp.com. Her writing about feminism and women's issues in the world of Star Trek can be found at trekkiefeminist.com. Jara, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's good to have you aboard. I, I always ask first-time guests on the show, how did you become a Star Trek fan? When did you first discover Star Trek? Um, well, I, my first memory of Star Trek was when I was uh, about, uh, oh man, how old was I? I guess like five, six, when okay. um, the uh, uh, the episode Best of Both Worlds came out. And uh, oh. my siblings used to watch Star Trek, but I, I don't think I, they're, they're quite a bit older than me. And I don't remember having watched it with them before part one of Best of Both Worlds. And then... Uh, I was like glued to the TV and then had predictable nightmares all summer. Um, but I was like, I had to see how that story ended. And yeah, right. uh, then I was pretty much hooked from then on. Um, my dad was a fan of the original series as well. So then he uh, tried to, you know, take me back and, uh, uh, you know, show me the cage and uh, some of the original sure. series stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, just uh, rest is history. So you had a multi-generational support structure there as far as <laughs> yeah, your family definitely. goes. Uh, are there any other like sci-fi fandoms that your siblings were into just as uh, older kids that you also got into? Um, well, my uh, brother was big into Star Wars, but I actually yeah, didn't yeah. watch Star Wars until maybe junior high. Um, oh, okay. Uh, but uh, so like Star Trek's really my top fandom and then more on my own because you know getting involved in the Star Trek fandom I met other people that we had a lot in common and then they were also interested in Doctor Who so then I tried Doctor Um, Who and The Expanse and so I have a whole bunch of like secondary uh, fandoms to Star Trek that I really love um, including those ones and I mean really right now we're blessed with such, such great a plethora of Star Trek and sci-fi in general. So it's a great time to be a fan. There is a quite a bit, yeah, of other fandoms around. Some some of which we talk about on this show, but we try to keep it to uh, Star Trek usually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can't avoid talking about uh, Star Wars and crossing the streams sometimes. Yeah. I believe we've had Canadian guests on the show previously. Um, I spoke recently with the hosts of the Boldly Boinking podcast, (laughs) who are, I believe, from Montreal. Yeah. as a citizen of the country where Star Trek first premiered, what is Canadian Star Trek fandom like? How does it compare to Trekkies in the States? Well, um, we're pretty, we're proud of Vulcan and the fact that we had the premiere first. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, also, you know, the home of a lot of the iconic Trek actors. You got Shatner, you got James Doohan, you got um, oh, yeah, the... Yeah. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Barbara March, who played Lursa. You know, basically all good Star Trek fans can name all the Canadian actors on Star Trek too, as part of our like need to support our national pride against the elephant that is America. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, but there's a a ton of uh, fan clubs. Um, I'm from Ottawa, and we have. Uh, like two fan clubs uh, for, you know, a city of just now hit a million people, plus everyone who's a fan and isn't officially in a club. Um, There's a really vibrant community. That's amazing. I've been to Riverside, Iowa. I've got to get to Vulcan. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've heard recently that Bloomington, Indiana, there are people in Bloomington who want to uh, fully uh, sort of enshrine it as Janeway's birthplace. Yeah. Why not? I don't I don't know what form that would take. If they have like a parade and a festival like Riverside, that would be great. Yeah, cool. I mean, Vulcan has unfortunately declined somewhat since the rebranding, I guess maybe about a decade ago now. But there's <laughs> okay. still the convention every year and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of like murals and the enterprises there. Yeah. Um, and the city council still all owns uh star trek uniforms that they wear to their like official delegations and every year it's like a news story about like are we wasting taxpayer dollars on star trek uniforms (laughs) you're like i'm pretty sure that is not that much money in the grand scheme of a budget like it would be that much yeah yeah well speaking of conventions you just got back from the star trek las vegas convention Uh, how was that and have you recovered yet 
I'm still regenerating in my alcove. (laughs) Um, But it was great. It was really, really fun. Um, It was uh, this year we didn't really get to take in a lot of stuff on the stage because we were at our uh, Roddenberry Podcast Network booth for a lot of the time. And uh, we had several panels. Um, But, uh, you know, saw a few of the things on the main stage. Kate Mulgrew was really on her game. Um, There was a lot of stuff. um, There wasn't really any big news, um, but there were a lot of panels uh, like four Discovery cast panels. Um, it was great to see so many of the Discovery actors there. We got to interview uh, Rekha Sharma and uh, Jane Brooke. So looking forward oh, wow. to airing that soon. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that there wasn't uh, a lot of news. I mean, there was a huge announcement, of course, at San Diego this year about uh, upcoming things in Trek. But it seems like they kind of got it all out in San Diego. And then it was more just uh, follow up stuff, I guess, at Las Vegas. Yeah, that seems to be always the way it is. And, you know, people have been miffed about that in the past. I've been going to Star Trek Las Vegas. This was my fifth year um, out of six years. And there's never really big been a big announcement. There's always been an expectation that there will be and then there never is. Right. Well, I mean, we got uh, last year, we got uh, Patrick Stewart uh, announcing Picard. Yeah, that was the biggest one by far. Um, but I think that someone made a good point, which is that, you know, Star Trek Las Vegas is kind of preaching to the choir. And, well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, so San Diego Comic-Con is where you go to try to hopefully reach a bigger audience. Uh, so maybe that <laughs> yeah. is actually the better place to make these announcements. Yeah. Well, at San Diego this year, we got to look at the full trailer for the upcoming Picard series and a mm-hmm. detailed look at Lower Decks, uh, the animated series, and a sneak peek at Discovery Season 3. Uh, it's, I mean, it's an amazing time to be a Star Trek fan. What do you think of the Picard teaser? I really loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it looks really exciting. And uh, I mean, I, I think it looks like there's a, a pretty diverse cast and there's going to be some interesting characters there. Um uh, I think um, there's there's a little bit of consternation in uh, my friend community about, you know, why do we get, um, you know, data or, or before we get Brent Spiner and we get Imzadi, but we don't get Bev. Um, yeah. And um, I'm really, really, really hoping they don't fridge her because I think that would be really upsetting. Ooh, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not thinking that's where it's going to go. I'm being... Uh, cautiously to very optimistic at this point yeah and uh gonna see where uh give them a chance to see where they're gonna go yeah that's i feel this, a similar way especially hearing about like the return of seven of nine which is exciting and of course uh, record tray and data what really got me though was you know the look that we got at the entirely new cast of characters mm-hmm. that are being introduced yeah and it seems like there's a high degree of parity between male and female roles which i thought was great same with lower decks i think of the eight characters that we saw they're like half male and half female and of course, like Discovery has from the start featured a high degree of diversity in its cast of characters. So you think we're are we really getting a true depiction now of the equality promised by the original premise of Roddenberry's Trek? Yeah, I would say absolutely. I think, you know, there's still hiccups and, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, um, the, for instance, you know, the writer's room in, in Discovery has definitely diversified as the show's gone on. And I think that if, as long as that trend continues of writers and directors also diversifying, that we're going to be okay. Uh, yeah. But there's always rooms for big blind spots if you don't also diversify behind the scenes. Yeah. There was an interesting question on the uh, San Diego Comic-Con Discovery panel from an audience member. Um, Fans, of course, were wary of the killing of Culber in season one, uh, saying some saying that it was an example of burying your gaze. Mm -hmm. But of course, he was brought back in season two. But the Mm -hmm. questioner at the panel basically pointed out that, you know, with Disco uh, as a show, you know, has increased the uh, representation of diversity by leaps and bounds in the Star Trek galaxy. And now that they're sort of sending them to the future and not allowing anybody in the sort of current contemporary timeline to talk about them and their departure, it's kind of like a similar sort of death of representation. What, What do you think about that? Well, I think it will depend on how things go with the other series. I yeah. I don't really see it that way, but, you know, just say if they were to announce like a Pike spinoff um, that has as diverse a crew as the cage, then we might have a problem. But I mean, we did see the the Enterprise in the like with the Anson Mount Pike cast did seem to right. have a bit more diversity, yeah. um, but it needs to be 
conscious because it does really strike you when you just see like spock pike and number one that you're like oh gosh all white people again yeah <laughs> love there, love them all but you need to have more than that there were there was all kinds of diversity there was left parts right parts and parts right down the middle so i'm not yeah. exactly sure what you're talking about with the cave uh we'll talk about that, that in a second i did want to ask you i was talking to uh amy imhoff recently somebody mm-hmm. who's been on women at warp a couple times we were talking about the panel that she hosted a few years ago at stlv that kate mulgrew and B. Joe trimble were a part of and i think that you were involved as well i was uh, which must have been like an out-of-body experience <laughs> yes absolutely um that was our first time having that panel on the main stage the previous years um not just were we not on the main stage but um there were in the first couple years the creation um program listed us as like trek fan girls and okay. we went like <laughs> hey could we maybe say women like yeah. if, especially when the point where we were all over 30 um and uh um there was also a real resistance to using the word feminism in the description so um, we achieved a lot by that year in being able to you know use the word woman use the word feminist um, and then to get to share that moment at the 50th anniversary with B. Joe Tremble and Kate Mulgrew was so so incredible that is so yeah girls at warp not not so much (laughs) (laughs) well thanks so much for joining the show Uh, last year when I began researching for an episode that I did with Melinda Snodgrass about her classic episode The Measure of a Man I went to look at some of the early days and documents of the development of the next generation the early days of TNG were beset by production conflicts over the direction of the show and the subject matter and the process by which the show would be produced and I got my hands on the show bible uh, the document that serves as a guide for contributing writers and as a touchstone for the production as it relates to the characters in the world of the show. And as I was reading the character descriptions, I noticed that out of the three female characters, two of them are described in terms uh, purely of physical attractiveness before any of their qualifications. Uh, That's Troy and Crusher. And all three female characters are in some capacity being kind of checked out, being evaluated in their attractiveness by the text which I felt was uh, disturbing, was distressing. And what really broke me was that Dr. Crusher was described as, uh, quote, catching the captain's eye with her very female form and having the, quote, natural walk of a striptease queen. Oh, right. It raised two questions in my mind. Number one, uh, is this the horniest ship in the galaxy? And number Uh. two, how can somebody type uh, this fast with one hand? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it also just says, you know, what on earth information does that actually give that's useful to the writers? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> like if you're writing a story, how far can you get just knowing she's sexy? Right. And it kind of Which... <laughs> explains why they, you know, maybe ran out of ideas for like something a, at some a writer point. has no control over. Right. It's just like, yeah. OK, yes. Attractive actress. That job's done, I guess. Yeah. And then you and that's probably why you have characters like, uh, you know, I think the episode in Code of Honor, which is a terrible episode for many reasons, but <laughs> also like three people note how attractive Tasha Yar is. Like you actually right. have it in dialogue. Like she's a very striking woman. And you're going like, we can see this is yeah. a visual medium. Striking is something that's attributed to her. She's described as having a conditioned body, muscul- yeah. muscular and well-developed and very female. It, it sticks mm-hmm. on at the end, very female appearance. So still traditionally attractive. The real irony is that the majority of the series Bible was written by David Gerald, a gay man. Mm-hmm. And some of the Bible was essentially cut and paste from the phase two Bible, um, the strip uh, striptease line in particular. Uh, and some elements were contributed by Roddenberry and Bob Jessman and DC Fontana. And by contrast, the male characters are described, as you'd imagine, solely by the duties they execute as ship's officers. Um, Riker is described personally as, quote, not fully aware that human females have needs of their own. He doesn't fully appreciate the power of the female need to be needed. Uh, <laughs> underlined. Emphasis theirs. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, that was discouraging for me. I didn't have any illusions that the era that TNG was made in was totally equal in terms of sexual politics, but I assumed it would at least be more progressive than, you know, the institutional sexism of the 60s that would produce an episode like Turnabout Intruder with a straight face. Yeah. And, you know, it's that comment about Riker is funny because I, I always sort of saw it in a more positive light that it's like, oh, yeah, Riker, he's like treating women like they have agency. But no, apparently he's failing to recognize our need to be needed. Yes, right. He just needs to figure that out and everything will be OK. Yeah. <laughs> Something that comes up often on this show uh, when talking about the depiction of women, usually on TOS or TNG, is this idea that like sci-fi and early Trek in particular was created 
you know, for dudes by dudes, despite its encompassing ambitions. And that's probably true of the majority of genre TV uh, and in most circles of all TV for a certain era. But it seems like it was a big part of TOS and early TNG. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you in particular about this is that you put together a post a few years back for Women at Warp showing some data about the then five live action series and the early numbers concerning women uh, in creative positions weren't weren't that great. Yeah, the um, the numbers for women in behind the scenes positions. And when I evaluated this, um, it becomes a little bit complicated as you go towards the more modern uh, era because of the way that credited positions changed. But I was basically evaluating the number of times that women were credited. And I even looked at, you know, uh, you know, DC Fontana uh, sometimes wrote under a, a man's name. I credited that correctly to her. I looked at all the all the sure. pseudonyms and um, evaluated it. And um, I mean, obviously, there were no women directors on the original series. That's not that surprising. Um, we didn't yeah. get any until TNG and Discovery in two seasons has almost doubled the total <laughs> yeah, number well, of yeah. women directors. Yeah. Um, writers there was really there was a dc fontana and you know a couple other ones um who wrote one or two episodes each yeah, i think about a quarter of tos episodes had a woman in the writing credits mm-hmm. yeah um but um you know when you read the books uh the behind the scenes books like um these are the voyages or the 50-year mission um it becomes clear that um I think DC Fontana obviously had a lot of influence and there, there were some other women who had influence. Some of them were um, the, like the secretaries of Jean Kuhn and uh, yeah, some of the yeah. other production people. Um, DC Fontana started out in one of those secretarial roles um, yeah. for, briefly. So, you know, you can't necessarily assess influence based on credits, but you can certainly infer that those people think, were yeah. <laughs> were getting recognition, were getting um, more, uh, were getting paid more. And uh, and then certainly, you know, reading about the behind the scenes atmosphere, it was very much a boys club. You read about like the practical oh, yeah. jokes, even into TNG, um, practical joking, various people on the cast. And um, it's stuff that would not be super tolerated in most modern workplaces. Yeah, I think that there is definitely an argument to be made that the increasing number of women, you know, behind the scenes or below the line uh, would increase the subject matter that you'd see on the screen. And as far as the boys club thing goes, it's funny because I don't really know how executive producers get their jobs. I mean, somebody like Rick Berman is going to be around for the whole thing uh, or a guy like... Um, but now I'm forgetting his name. Brandon Braga. Uh, wish, oh, yeah. I could, wish I could forget his name. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got somebody like, you know, Jerry Taylor, who was a supervising producer on TNG and then stuck around and became like the only, I think, female EP uh, on a show like Voyager. And something like DS9, I mean, you can argue that the sort of singularness of the what they were trying to do as far as storytelling meant that you couldn't change horses too much in midstream, but it actually was a step backward from diversity uh, from what TNG had with 17% of episodes having a woman credited as a writer compared to TNG's 30%, and no women contributed any writing at all to the seventh season of DS9. Yeah, that's very true, and um, that's what I mean a little bit about the way that um, writers' rooms changed a little bit. That yeah. it, it, it was it used to be like you farm out your script, and your two pe- one person writes it, and then it gets workshopped by other staff writers. But then, like as we moved farther along it was like you have a writer's room and people are getting assigned cuts of it but they're also still bouncing ideas off each other more yeah um and that progressively increased as we moved forward so it becomes harder to trace um the actual like influence on scripts to particular people because you can't go back and like look at all the memos people wrote yeah Um, right right but you uh still can figure out that season seven of deep space nine didn't really do so well if there are no women credited as writers at all yeah yeah it's it's an interesting distinction um voyager i think in your article you uh say that the ratio of men to women in production roles had uh reached uh two to one at that point and then I think um, like 25% still of the episodes were crediting a woman writer. And then, of course, at, on that series, you've got an expanded role um, for Janeway as the female captain. You've got um, characters like Belana Torres and Seven of Nine who are interacting with each other uh, with no men around necessarily. So seeing an improvement. Enterprise, of course, looks like that's a step back again. So it kind of ebbs and flows. Now, I don't have numbers for Discovery, but I think it's plain to see that 
that upward trend in representation, both uh, above and below the line, are is the reality. I mean, you've got Heather Caden serving as executive producer for all of Discovery, and you've got people like Gretchen Berg and Kirsten Beyer, and Bo Young Kim and Erica Lippold and others serving in various writing and producing roles. And then that that diversity is reflected, it appears on screen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I haven't broken down all of the roles for Discovery. Um, I mentioned there's several women directors. It's still not the yeah. majority, but it's right. significant compared to previous series, um, including um, Hanalee Culpepper, who has uh, directed the new Picard pilot after doing a couple episodes of Discovery. And she's uh, the first woman to direct a Star Trek fi- pilot. And she was the first uh, African-American woman to direct Star Trek. So uh, Discovery's yeah broken some new ground for sure That's, and uh yeah. yeah um and i think um i do have the bechdel wallace test results for anyone who doesn't know that's uh <laughs> we, when a, a yeah, show yeah oh go ahead i was just gonna say oh. I, that's that's in my notes but we can go right into that oh, okay we well yeah. <laughs> so um uh, this is uh, a, a test that was sort of jokingly developed uh by uh, cartoonist elson bechdel um, and uh, based on a suggestion from her friend Liz Wallace, so Bechdel Wallace test, right. and it basically is anything where any piece of media where uh, two women talk to each other about something other than a man. And um, the reason it got picked up was that it's such a really it's an easy test. It's a really 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 low bar. So this is not like the test of what makes all media good. It's a test of what makes all media remotely considerate of women characters right. um and uh um people have sort of adjusted the test to um specify and this is the test that i follow requires that the women characters have a name so it can't just be rando dabo girl says to random lieutenant hey i got your drink right um, yeah 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 and then the whole episode continues it has to be two characters that actually have <laughs> names um so uh, Discovery has 100% passed the test, which is the first oh, yeah. Star Trek to do so. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating that, you know, the trend goes upwards, uh, even through DS9 until Voyager hits, I think, like 87% in terms of episodes that pass the Bechdel test. Uh, 100% of episodes in Voyager season five passing the Bechdel test, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, it's really hard when you have women captain a woman captain and a woman uh, chief engineer or other key position. And season five, you had Bolana and Seven. Um, yeah. There were a lot of Seven episodes that season. Well, yeah. Um, and uh, the relationship that they built between Janeway and Seven was very helpful for that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it. you know, there's sort of two ways of going about it. Either you make a few really key women characters or a lot of women characters in general. Um, and uh, their Voyager definitely had a few key women characters. And then Enterprise, unfortunately, uh, fell way back down. And part of that was that it only had really two main women characters yeah. uh, to Paul and Hoshi. And they really never, like, they never really talked to each other. There's a couple episodes uh, including like one of my favorite is the episode Sleeping Dogs with the Klingon ship uh, for an mm. early Enterprise episode. Mm. And uh, Hoshi is kind of afraid of everything as usual. And uh, <laughs> they're, uh, and T'Pol teaches her how to meditate while they're, they're on this away mission. And then Hoshi's translating stuff. And it showed what could have been in terms of a friendship between them, but then it never really turned into anything. So you have yeah. a whole bunch of episodes where just no women talk to each other. Yeah. I think that this sort of oh you know what I want I want to talk about um, the films uh, quick I mean mm-hmm. in two in two thousand nine when the Kelvin Universe uh, you know is launches um, it <laughs> does it it gets both better and worse I think because yeah. like Star Trek two thousand nine passes but it's because of a scene where two women are literally having a conversation in their underwear while Kirk is peeping at them from under a bed. Yeah, this is a, a really good example of why the test is not perfect. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's the scene where Uhura and Gala, her roommate, are talking to each other. And uh, Kirk has been making out with Gala and he's hiding under the bed while Uhura gets changed and watching her get changed. Um, so that is obviously not a feminist scene or like a scene promoting women's equality in any way or... Does Gala um, has the potential to be a really cool character, but that's not the scene that makes her a cool character. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so definitely an example of how the test is re- like a very, very low bar. But I think, you know, people who critique the test, there are lots of valid criticisms to raise. Like it yeah. doesn't analyze 
their you know race or any other forms of oppression um, or the content of that conversation either yeah exactly yeah. um but i think it's useful to ask okay well imagine there was a reverse bechdel test where you had to see if something uh passed if it had two men who talked to each other about something other than a woman and it is extremely difficult to find anything that fails that test yeah i mean if you had something that could that failed that test you would just assume, or the average observer would assume, that they were watching, I don't know, something written by Margaret Atwood or, or something like that. Like, it was definitely, like, in the genre of, like, women's entertainment. But instead, the reality is the other flip side, which is hardly anything ever passes this test. And yet it's it's just totally natural for the, your average viewer. Yeah, things have definitely improved in the last few years. But uh, for a long, 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 long time, just everything failed. Yeah. But now you have, you know, movements in, uh, I believe, like Sweden and stuff to actually some theaters will list whether a, a film passed the test. In oh, really? Theater listings. Oh, interesting. Um, so there's there's these like little movements in places to try to hold media creators a little bit more accountable to even some of these very basic standards. Yeah. So I think that that four dudes by dudes hypothesis that I sort of opposed earlier, I think, um, has been proven out here that we get out of the machine what we put into it. Something else that gets brought up often on the the simmering garbage stew that the Internet can be sometimes uh, is that, you know, hey, man, it was another time. You know, things were different back then. Uh, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, Star Trek was really ahead of its time, you know, politically. You know, Pike let a woman run the bridge. And my favorite thing is like, why are you trying to be so political? It's just Star Trek. It's just entertainment. Do you run into those kind of apologists? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, even actually my favorite was uh, just at Star Trek Las Vegas. We just did a a thing on um, uh, women's costumes. And we had this is not exactly the same, but it reminds me of the sa- same line of thinking. Uh, someone came up and got like quite annoyed that we had not taken time to think about how these costumes are appreciated from a man's perspective. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> kind of missed the point there but i mean in terms of the whole it was it was the 60s thing and actually even now there are people who will look at tng and say oh it was the 80s or it was the early 90s and like use that to apologize for things that weren't great in tng yeah um and i'm assuming that like 20 years down the road people will be like oh it was 2001 enterprise wasn't that bad oh okay (laughs) Um, but uh people um First of all, fail to realize Star Trek's always been political. And yes, in, in many ways, it was groundbreaking for the time. And that's part of part of that was that it was political. Or the the idea that, you know, the modern third wave feminist reading of, of TOS, I think, tends to be whatever slips it made vis-a-vis uh, Turnabout Intruder or what have you. You know, it was progressive simply to see women in roles that weren't domestic. They've got professional military careers. You know, the miniskirts were totally empowering sexually, you guys. Yeah, totally. But um, I think it's also important to recognize that just like the audience today doesn't all agree on Star Trek, the audience in the 60s didn't all agree on Star Trek <laughs> yeah, either. Yeah, sure. And uh, if you read the book Letters to Star Trek, which is uh, a really, I highly recommend a collection of fan mail uh, to Gene Roddenberry and some of his responses, there's like three or four letters in there uh, that are women objecting to miniskirts, objecting to the way that um, women uh, like Carolyn Palamas in Who Mourns for Adonis are portrayed as like, you know, becoming disloyal and unable to keep their head on straight when there's a a gorgeous man in the vicinity right um and uh so yes absolutely a lot of people found the miniskirts really empowering including nichelle nichols um i have no problem with them but there were people who didn't um so it's not like uniform and there were also um people who had some issues with the limited way that women were portrayed um like why are there so all all these yeomen and there's no uh, men, yo, men. <laughs> Somebody's got to carry all these clipboards. Yeah. What, yeah. what I wonder, though, is like what scares th- these you know modern commenters about admitting that, yeah, maybe a show made in the 60s by men might have been a little bit sexist. I don't know. I think that there's people who just take it personally when there's critiques about something that they really love. And like, you know, me, me and my co-hosts and Amy and friends of the show, like we all love TOS, too. We love Star Trek. Um, but some people think, oh my gosh, I love this thing. And maybe I didn't notice that was a problem with it. And it's easier for me to just deny it than to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, why, why didn't I notice that? I can see that. I always find that when I learn, I mean, I guess if I learn something that I like is totally problematic and I had no idea, then I, I feel really bad. But, but I always like learning things that I didn't know about something that I appreciate, even if it's something that gives it 
just a bit of recontextualization. Like, I would want to be open to that. Totally. And I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think that the fact that people did express their views at the time only led to Star Trek getting better in the long term. Um, Gene Roddenberry in some of his letters back, you know, acknowledges that, you know, that we could have done things better and uh, that hopefully that led to some of the advances that we did end up seeing in the next generation and beyond that um, there's always been this fan dialogue and fan feedback. There's, you know, there's a difference between providing some constructive feedback and saying like, hey, guys, I love this. But in the future, we should have gay people or trans people right. um, versus like the people who are like, this is not real Star Trek. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, just being like not very constructive and acting like they own the franchise. Um, but I think that constructive fan feedback um, that comes from a place of love and acknowledging the values of Star Trek and wanting those values to be consistent with the representations yeah. um, is exceptionally valuable and has always been part of the franchise. Yeah, I think that feedback has definitely contributed to the upward trend. And I think it's amazing, you know, just all told, it's amazing that sci-fi writers, you know, from the 50s who flew bombing runs in World War II and came home and wrote sci-fi books about manly spacemen, that they could get together and conceive and write something like the world of Star Trek an egalitarian world, you know, whose even who, whose real message of equality isn't necessarily being adequately explored, but all the same, young men and women can see these characters in their world and be inspired to create their own works of progressive fiction or even grow up to write Star Trek stories that push the Star Trek universe forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you look back in the, the making of Star Trek by Gene Roddenberry and Stephen Whitfield, um, mm -hmm. there's some interesting stuff there that didn't make the actual series but even like on ideas about um what would be necessary in terms of birth control and things that were <laughs> right, very yeah. verboten topics but they're actually thinking about these in ways that were very ahead of their time yeah uh to put it in sort of scientific trekkie terms i think that there is still a corrupted dna in the franchise of star trek there's this persistent problem of trek having its roots in sexist golden age sci-fi um you know, even, even though the cage introduces a mixed crew uh, and a command character like number one, you know, she was cut by producers after the first pilot for being too masculine. Uh, any female officer, you know, could just disappear from service at any time. If she got married, we'd lose an officer. And one of the episodes that naturally comes up when talking about the original series' problems with women is Turnabout Intruder. And that episode's probably the most regressive script the show has ever produced. Yeah, it's it, it's bad. <laughs> um, there's really no way around it. I mean, you know, people complain about the justifi justifiably complain about the very terrible Enterprise finale. And then it's like, let's look back and remind ourselves yeah. that almost every Star Trek other than TNG and DS9 has had like not the best finale. But Turnabout Intruder wasn't intended as the finale, but it's so sad that it was. Yes. Yes. Oh, I've, I've oh. I, Yeah. Yeah. It's just I think. You know, from what I've read and what I understand, like, it's true that it wasn't supposed to be a finale, but I think everybody was pretty checked out of the mm -hmm. <laughs> of the franchise at that point. And so nobody was really uh, paying attention to what they were leaving people. I've heard or I've read that the episode is in in some way like a reactionary response to radical feminism of late 1960s. Like you get a character like Dr. Lester, who is like a caricature of a feminist um, the, the show or the script seems to be saying that, you know, women want to, of course, replace men and take their jobs. And of course, as the episode shows, they can't handle them. Yeah, you know, I, I've read that critique, too, and I can certainly see that I haven't read evidence in like the memos or anything to back up that that's specifically what they were thinking when they were writing it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when you go back and try to you know, mention some of the things about this episode uh, to uh, the people who were in charge of the episode. Um, for example, this whole very controversial point about women were, aren't allowed to be captains, which Lester seems to indicate. Um, uh, it's sort of written off as, oh, well, she just wasn't allowed to be a captain because she was clearly unhinged and that she's turned it into like a big attack on her gender. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's got some like similarities with that backlash um against like 
quote-unquote women's lib movement. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm sure it didn't help any of that. Um, and certainly not the, you know, when they're in their body swaps and they accuse Kirk of being red-faced and hysterical. <laughs> he's, um, he's, he's literally, uh, we, we, we cut in on him literally doing his nails at one point. And it's like, okay, yeah, this isn't any yeah. kind of serious treatise on anything. Yeah, but then again, I mean, like, Profit and Lace uh, well, yeah. <laughs> in the DS9 episode <laughs> basically treated body swapping or in this case like a fast sex change and uh, hormone situation as basically the same level of stereotyping and that was many many years later. Yeah. So I'm uh, yeah I mean maybe you're right. I don't really see it as like corrupted DNA. I sort of see it as Star Trek has always really had this tension of trying to imagine an egalitarian future while being written by people who are stuck in the 20th and 21st centuries and can't actually imagine what that would be like for people who aren't their same race and gender. Yeah, I don't want to let them off that easy, though. They're writers. I mean, it's literally their job to imagine things that yeah. don't exist, you know? But Definitely. I, but so, I see yeah. the, the problem of imperfect people trying to create a perfect world. I mean, certainly when, you know, the idea that because Star Trek was influenced that way in the 60s, that that has led to some of the problems now. I think you can definitely find examples of that in the JJ-verse films. Um, oh. For example, uh you know, we had the original series created this kind of myth um, that, you know, Kirk is a ladies man or a womanizer. And he, he definitely is to an extent. But I think that um, Kirk is actually pretty ethical in the original series, generally speaking with women, that he um, he isn't like promising things he can't deliver or right. deceiving unless they're literally the enemy. Yeah, um, it's, it's a and- tactic usually. His yeah, seduction. whereas J.J. Kirk is, like, really sleazeball. He's a mess. Um, and yeah. I think that that came more from, like, this the parodies of what Kirk was than yes. what Kirk actually was. Yeah, well, J.J. will tell you right off the bat that he was never a huge Star Trek fan, and it's like, great. Mm-hmm. We talk about that a lot on, on this show. I call it the myth of the sexy Kirk. I have a friend that calls it Kirk Drift. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just this sort sense. of changing view of, of Kirk throughout the years. Uh, one resource that I always use when I'm researching episodes and getting ready for um, episodes of this show is uh, Keith DeCandido's tour recaps of TOS yes. and TNG, which are very detailed and good. And I read the recap for Turnabout Intruder, which was written by him on November 8th, 2016, Election Day. Uh, mm-hmm. Before the results had come out, and he was talking about the just the sort of sad state of this episode and the troubling implications, and how we are dealing with and struggling with similar issues now, and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have a th- a turnaround and things will get better. And um, I think we've got a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, just a little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, certainly, the representations of women in power in Trek have dramatically improved but even through voyager and you'll still see backlash that about janeway that's like really really sexist and uh has you know manifests huge double standards about how the trek audience views women in power oh yeah um yeah but uh you know i think i feel like discovery like with admiral cornwell and version both georgios has um really started to break down some of that one of my favorite Admiral characters is uh, Admiral Nechev. Uh, yeah. I really like her, and all the criticisms I hear of her is like, "What a you know, what a bitch she is, and how mm-hmm. mean she is." And then you look at somebody like Terry O'Quinn's Admiral Pressman, who's a criminal and easily as mean, but nobody says that. They're like, "Oh, that's yeah, love that guy." Yeah. Definitely. Like those, uh, you know, uh, Pressman and some of those other older male uh, admirals, they're like tragic heroes, kind of. Oh, you know, right. Like, yeah, or yeah. Fallen, fallen heroes. And uh, you're supposed to still um, empathize with them and feel like, <laughs> oh, it's so sad that they that, you know, hubris got the best of them or whatever. Um, but you're right. Like we uh, recently did an episode on on gender and aging in Star Trek and oh, cool. uh, talked about Necheyev and uh, some of the other admirals and how they they generally fall into that like Harridan trope like they're there yeah. to hassle our heroes and uh <laughs> it, it's uh not yeah. really fair I mean the, I, it's like Admiral Satie would be another example of that yeah um a bonus uh, or like a plus side is that um they are always shown as intelligent and generally deserving of their rank it isn't like they got there because 
you know, I don't know, whatever, like, they're, uh, they're, like, Sati, no one's ever, like, your dad got you this job. Um, right. <laughs> but, um, but then, uh, certainly with, with Sati, she, uh, has this, she also becomes unhinged, basically, when her dad's memory is used against her, and I feel like that's an unfortunate twist. Yeah. Um, as much as I love that episode. It's, it's a really, inter- I mean, looked, um, totally divorced from gender I think it's a really interesting uh, scenario and character but then yeah when you put it on a female admiral who's wearing a pink dress or whatever it's like what okay I can see how that's possibly problematic well I mean it is a I I would say call it more of a uh, blood red robe that bears (laughs) certain resemblance to a Georgia O'Keeffe painting or other things. <laughs> you've, okay, you've thought about this a lot more than I have. Okay, I, I, I have to admit, I mostly took that from Fashion It So, not the Georgia oh. O'Keeffe analogy, but it was more vulgar than what I just said. Okay, okay, yeah. I see what you mean. Okay, yeah. Uh, all right, well, check that out. Uh, <laughs> I, TNG, I think, slowly but surely began to right the ship uh, in terms of breaking the dramatic glass ceiling. Uh, to mix seven metaphors here. But, you know, Gene, of course, still involved in the early years, and he wanted to replicate the feel of the original series, brought a lot of the original people that he worked with on, DC Fontana and John D.F. Black, Justman, Gerald. And the result, I think, initially is, you know, what we described earlier in those Bible excerpts. The plots were full of those stories like, here's an old scientist who lives alone on a planet somewhere except for his hot doormat wife, or, (laughs) hey, it's the Swedish massage planet where everybody's making eyes at each other. Or the ever-present magic pregnancy plotline, or I can't have children, so I'm a monster. Maybe that was Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, <laughs> there was four men and three women in the main cast uh, when it starts out, and that's a deviation from the ratio that persists until Discovery, five men and two women in the main cast. Each female character is a rock-solid archetype. Uh, some are more than one. Troy's a Earth Mother, Nurturer-type character. She's also an exotic foreigner. Uh, Crusher is like a matronly nurturer in her role as a healer. She's also, you know, literally a concerned mother. And Yar is almost, I don't know, it's hard to parse Yar because she wasn't around for very long. But she seems definitely um, not sexless, but less sexed than, than the other women characters, except for that weird thing with Data. And the Bible makes all these promises for Yar being you know, emotionally and sexually a dominant person, something that I think would have been interesting to explore, especially at that time. But she's basically sexless in any function, you know, way before she leaves the show. And in fact, both of the characters that are perceived as generally romantically unavailable uh, in early TNG, Yar and Pulaski, they only last one season on the show. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any uh, connection there, but I'm implying one. Well, um, I, I feel like... Um... I, I agree that there's a trend there, but I don't know that just given those two specific cases that they were linked. Um, yeah. We, you know, Marina Sirtis has said that if Denise Crosby didn't leave, that she was told by Majel Barrett she was going to be the one to she go. She was going to go, yeah. Um, that they, they had to cut someone and that she wasn't the most popular and they didn't really know what to do with her. Um, and she <laughs> yeah. was certainly sexualized. So I don't, I don't know that that was the main reason that Yara didn't last. Um, but... Uh, I think that, and I mean, we know that uh, Diana Muldaur really didn't like working on TNG um, as <laughs> yeah. much as I love Pulaski. Um, and, uh, you know, people didn't all love working with her. So there were some bigger issues at play there. But I, I think it is important to acknowledge that that happened because it still crafts the way that we see the show and these characters that, you know, some people are more expendable based on like their age or their lack of conforming to this like sexualized image of what the theoretically teenage male audience wants to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, I also with Yar, I mean, uh, I don't know if you've read this uh, story, but I saw in an interview in I think Starlog after Denise left that she was remembering a scene that her and Marina Sergis did in their audition uh-huh. uh, where um they had to do a reading and uh, Troy was basically uh, asking Yar, like, what's up? You seem really, like, stressed and uh, uh, sort of insinuates that she has, like, a, a thing for the captain um, okay. as, like, a father figure. But then also basically encourages her that in order to chill out, she should, like, go get laid. 
And uh, Denise Crosby, I think, was like, I really wish that had happened at the time. You know, this is like in the early 90s. I was like, I really wish that it would have happened because it would have been more interesting than anything else I got to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's that weird thing that we we've talked about this on a previous episode of this show. I think it was the Boldly Boinking crew that I talked to about early treks like weird dorky like enthusiasm for sex it like wants to be it has this idea of like sexual equality and openness but it has no idea how to go about it so you get you get a scene like the one you described yeah there's also a scene i think what's the scene where it's a q is it heightened q where q puts yar in the penalty box or whatever, and then she's crying, <laughs> and Captain yeah. Picard says it's okay that she cries in the penalty box. But then the end of that scene is a weird thing where Yara's sort of like, "Boy, if you know you were a few years younger," and it's sort of like this flirtation, and it's like, mm-hmm. where does that, where does that even come from? Apparently, they had think- designs on that that just never came out. Yeah, I feel like it's partly just not knowing what to do with her. And yeah. then they they had also given her this bizarre backstory of being, like, from a planet with rape gangs. Where it's troubling. She's only in, in, like, seven episodes, they have to mention that five times. Um, yeah. But, uh, I think it's a complicated yeah. example of these writers, like, inability to write a lead woman who's uh, a non-romantic lead. You know, she's supposed to be this different kind of archetype, something that doesn't cleave to, like, traditional ideas of femininity. But, yeah, I, they didn't go anywhere with it. Well, yeah, and it's like you can't have conflict for a woman that doesn't involve sexual assault. <laughs> well, of course not. Yeah, right. Or um, you, magical yeah. forced pregnancy or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Troy, Troy seemed to be the focus of every every bad, we have no idea how emotions or women's bodies work, uh, sci-fi ideas uh, from the alien babies to being sort of mind raped herself. Um, Barkley is making deep fakes of her on the holodeck. Like mm-hmm. she, she went through twice what O'Brien went through. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. It was just the same thing every time. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> people, it all blurs together, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but chocolate makes it all better though. Yeah. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. Uh, poor Troy. Uh, luckily she got a few good episodes in the yeah. last few seasons. Certainly. Th- thanks Jerry Taylor. Made yeah, that happen. Jerry Taylor for sure. Yeah, as things as the TNG went on, I think the show definitely got better in that respect. Um, mid to late TNG, I think the female characters start to get equal recognition. They get stories of equal weight. You know, it's always tricky putting a modern read on something that was made a while ago. But there's a fifth season episode of TNG called Remember Me, which is basically mm-hmm. like a master class in gaslighting an intelligent, accomplished professional woman. Yeah, that's such a great episode. Um, it's and it's Crusher really just refusing to allow people to tell her she's crazy, and it's super badass. I highly recommend it. It's, I know. Um, and it's a really uh, you know Enterprise tried to do the same thing with Hoshi, except for it turns out Hoshi is crazy. <laughs> so another example of how Hoshi or Enterprise maybe fell backwards a little bit. Yes. There's, yeah, it's always, I mean, we we're just talking about Sati. What what do you think about characters that, I don't want to parse this. What, what do you think about when you give these sort of negative qualities or uh, negative storylines to female characters that maybe skirt a little too close to negative stereotypes about women, but are still have good storytelling potential? Like, I like that Hoshi's a coward. Like, I don't think that everybody that we shoot into space is going to be uh, a big damn hero. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But at the same time, people always complain that oh, well, she's always scared or she's always complaining about stuff. Yeah, no, I um, I don't have a problem with that on its own. It just is the bigger picture um, that you need a you need diverse representations. Like, you need, yeah. you need women villains. It doesn't matter that they're evil. You need to show that women can be all sorts of things. They don't have to be angels. Um, yeah. And with... Enterprise, you get uh, Hoshi and Paul, who both right away start out as outsiders. Like, Hoshi doesn't want to be in space, and she's right. afraid of everything. Right. And right. Paul, everyone doesn't like she's a Vulcan, and she's constantly resisting being more human, and everyone wants to make her more human. Yeah. Um, so then you, and then you don't really throw in a lot of other women characters, except for Cutler for a very brief period of time, and you just don't get that range. So it's, I think it would be awesome to see, I mean, like in Discovery, we get to see Tilly struggling with anxiety. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, because there's all these other characters that it doesn't equal women are afraid of space. Yeah, but when yeah, you yeah. only have like two representations, then it's 
the ship is a boys club and the women don't belong. Yeah, discovery or excuse me, uh, diversity uh, is sort of the antidote to that. Um, it's sort of the like the Keiko problem. Like I, mm. I love Keiko as a character and I love Rosalind Chow as an actress. And so I'm always well, I was shocked initially, I guess, but I just take as for granted now that uh, most fans hate Keiko and the things that they say about her are the things that they would say about, like you said before, like the Harridan sort of type, like the mm-hmm. naggy, crabby kind of person. I'd argue two things. One, uh, it's not her fault, it's the writers. And two, if you look back, I think you're putting a lot of that on her. I don't think she was ever really as bad as people seem to say that she is. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I also don't dislike her that much or as much as some people do um we actually had a writer do a discourse analysis of the o'brien's relationship really and found out that like roughly both of them say things that are sort of dysfunctional or like conflict oriented (laughs) um so it's not necessarily keiko more than miles yeah he's always Um, saying things kind of under his breath though too yeah yeah but and uh you know he doesn't know how to clean his house like there's a lot of (laughs) stereotypes negative stereotypes about men there sure yeah like like it's basically like you know a a, a 90s sitcom relationship (laughs) when it gets to deep space nine yeah um and uh, it's not really kind to anyone, but um, people still are like, oh, poor old Miles being, uh, you know, told what to eat by his cranky wife. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, we get like a lot of pushback on that article that's like, I don't care. Keiko's the worst. So I don't know. I mean, it's, there's definitely double standards there. I think race plays into it as well as gender. And it's it's unfortunate, especially like we haven't seen a lot of married couples in Trek. So it's yeah. unfortunate that that representation, which really stands out as like a long term married relationship, was just really like, you know, uh, Jill and Tim Taylor from Home Improvement or something. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I don't, boy, I, I came into this wanting to criticize the um, the writers and the, the production behind Star Trek, but now the fans are kind of uh, going up on the board too. Um, it seems like maybe because it's a sci-fi thing, like they wanted to introduce these elements of, like you said, other shows, it's almost a sitcom-y type relationship, but, they're, but they couldn't think of it outside of that, uh, like a Sam and Diane type thing. D- the mm. fact that like, I always hear about these little things that are just horrifying about um, behind the scenes Star Trek sometimes like when Takei uh, got his uh, rapier for the naked time apparently they wanted to give him a samurai sword and he's like I'm not I'm not using a samurai sword you can forget that <laughs> give me something else yep. like because I'm Japanese and then on DS9 when they did the Rumpelstiltskin episode they wanted mm-hmm. to do a leprechaun and, <laughs> and Cole Meany's like no we're not going to do that so you can pick something else. He's like else. are you kidding me I already lived through up the long ladder. <laughs> yeah right yeah, exactly so uh, the kind of like crew that would put that together I could see them going yeah yeah it's funny like she's mad and he just wants to eat potatoes and drink beer and she wants him to pick up his socks. Like, I guess I can see where that comes from. But it's still not mm-hmm. very exciting. More creative. No, not really. But, you know, creativity, I think, is exploding in the Star Trek universe right now. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned 2009 before. You have to be happy about, you know, the expanded role for Uhura in a lot of ways. Um, oh, man, I, I hope that we return to the Kelvin universe in films. I don't, it doesn't look like we're going to at this point, but you know, a character like JLo is really exciting from Star Trek Beyond, and so I hope that we are heading into new frontiers, if you will, as far as that goes. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You've thought and wrote and podcasted a lot about this topic. What do you see for the future? Do you think the trend of feminism and diversity uh, will continue to expand in Star Trek? I think that right now, all signs point to yes, if I was going to roll my magic eight ball. Um, I I think that we've seen steadily increasing diversity uh, behind the scenes and on screen. And uh, I think another indication is how vocal the actors in the writer's room and other uh, figures associated with the series have been um, on sort of progressive social and political issues um, that... Uh, that's a good sign because I think, uh, you know, farther back in the history of, of Star Trek, uh, before social media really exploded, um, people weren't really saying much publicly about like the meaning of the show or the values of the show while the show was airing. So the actors were, you know, their comments were very limited, um, to just like their, the role of their character. And, uh, 
it was harder for um, the actors to be playing as much roles as like social and political ambassadors. But now we're seeing that all over the place uh, with the Discovery cast. I mean, George Takei, obviously some of uh, the prominent uh, Patrick Stewart working on domestic violence issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that bodes really well um, as just, you know, solidifying the culture of um, Star Trek uh, in real, you know, Star Trek communities in real life, as well as the future of representations of the show. Yeah. Is there anything specific you'd like to see in upcoming Star Trek shows as pertains to representation? Um, well, I feel like Discovery has done, has closed a lot of gaps, but there's a few gaps that are remaining that I think are really important. Yeah. One is that we still haven't seen trans human characters yeah. uh, or non-binary humans. We've seen uh, trans or non-binary aliens and it, <laughs> yeah. the last one was cogenitor and it was very ham-fisted. So, yeah. uh, you know, trans people exist today. There's no reason they won't exist in the future. So let's have someone Star Trek. Um, the other... One, uh, two more. One, I think, is indigenous representation. Uh, Chakotay doesn't count, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, definitely. Chakotay was well-intentioned, but they hired someone who was not legitimate to yes. craft how he was portrayed. And I think that they're, it's really important that they do that right at some point in the future soon, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and uh, finally, uh, I don't think that discovery has done enough in terms of characters with disabilities they've shown some people in the background with wheelchairs but they aren't even named characters and they don't have lines so um i don't feel like they should get to pat themselves on the back quite just yet um the intent is there um they've you know even had uh, the people uh i went to a panel hosted by the directors guild of ontario with the um like the prop or set and uh Uh, some of the production designers and they talked about how the person designing the wheelchairs actually has designed real life wheelchairs so like they know what actually needs to happen for it to function um but we need some characters that people can actually connect to not just see in the background yeah absolutely it star trek always when they want to deal with the kind of topics of diversity that we're talking about they make up you know some kind of alien or there's some kind of situation like you've got molora and ds9 sort of deals with disabilities or a character like soren and the outcast from tng for like gender fluid characters but we are past that now this is the 21st century you can write a character about anything uh, they can be whatever you want so you know if we if we see some alien that has three sexes or something before we see a transgender character on discovery i'm going to be a, a little upset yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I'm not, I don't mean to like forget Jordy, but I think that there's still sure, more sure. more that can be done. And it's not like, you know, Star Trek shouldn't ever be like, hey, we checked the box. We don't need to go there yeah, right, anymore. Right. Um, it should just be looking at creating good characters that represent a range of uh, different experiences, human as well as alien. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me. Tell people where they can find you online. Yeah, you can uh, find our podcast at Women at Warp or, you know, all at Women at, or sorry, our podcast website is womenatwarp.com. And we're also on all the social medias at Women at Warp. And you can also find me at trekkiefeminist.com. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much for having me. That was fun. Why are we-